Part One of Was It an Illusion? A Parsons Story by Amelia B. Edwards. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Louise J. Bell. Part One of Was It an Illusion? A Parsons Story by Amelia B. Edwards. The facts which I am about to relate happened to myself some sixteen or eighteen years ago, at which time I served Her Majesty as an inspector of schools, and I was still young enough to enjoy a life of constant travelling. Now, the provincial inspector is perpetually on the move. There are, indeed, many less agreeable ways in which an unbeneficed parson may contrive to scorn delights and live laborious days. In remote places, where strangers are scarce, his annual visit is an important event, and though at the close of a long day's work he would sometimes prefer the quiet of a country inn, he generally finds himself the destined guest of the rector or the squire. It rests with himself to turn these opportunities to account. If he makes himself pleasant, he forms agreeable friendships and sees English home life under one of its most attractive aspects. And sometimes, even in these days of universal commonplaceness, he may have the luck to meet with an adventure. My first appointment was to a West of England district, largely peopled with my personal friends and connections. It was, therefore, much to my annoyance that I found myself, after a couple of years of very pleasant work, transferred to what a policeman would call a new beat up in the north. Unfortunately for me, my new beat, a rambling, thinly populated area of something under 1,800 square miles, was three times as large as the old one, and more than proportionately unmanageable. Intersected at right angles by two ranges of barren hills, and cut off to a large extent from the main lines of railway, it united about every inconvenience that a district could possess. The villages lay wide apart, often separated by long tracts of moorland, and in place of the well-warmed railway compartment and the frequent manor-house, I now spent half my time in hired vehicles and lonely country inns. I had been in possession of this district for some three months or so, and winter was near at hand when I paid my first visit of inspection to Pitt End, an outlying hamlet in the most northerly corner of my county.
just twenty-two miles from the nearest station. Having slept overnight at a place called Drumley, and inspected Drumley schools in the morning, I started for Pitt End with fourteen miles of railway and twenty-two of hilly crossroads between myself and my journey's end. I made, of course, all the inquiries I could think of before leaving, but neither the Drumley schoolmaster nor the landlord of the Drumley Feathers knew much more of Pitt End than its name. My predecessor, it seemed, had been in the habit of taking Pitt End from the other side, the roads, though longer, being less hilly that way. That the place boasted some kind of inn was certain, but it was an inn unknown to fame and to mine host of the feathers. Be it good or bad, however, I should have to put up at it. Upon this scant information, I started. My fourteen miles of railway journey soon ended at a place called Bramsford Road, whence an omnibus conveyed passengers to a dull little town called Bramsford Market. Here I found a horse and trap to carry me on to my destination, the horse being a raw-boned grey with a profile like a camel, and the trap a rickety high gig which had probably done commercial travelling in the days of its youth. From Bramsford Market, the way lay over a succession of long hills, rising to a barren, high-level plateau. It was a dull, raw afternoon of mid-November, growing duller and more raw as the day waned, and the east wind blew keener. "'How much farther now, driver?' I asked, as we alighted at the foot of a longer and a stiffer hill than any we had yet passed over. He turned a straw in his mouth, and grunted something about four or five mile by the rude.' and then I learned that by turning off at a point which he described as Twold Tolus, and taking a certain footpath across the fields, this distance might be considerably shortened. I decided, therefore, to walk the rest of the way, and, setting off at a good pace, I soon left driver and trap behind. At the top of the hill, I lost sight of them, and coming presently to a little roadside ruin, which I at once recognized as the old toll house, I found the path without difficulty. It led me across a barren slope divided by stone fences, with here and there a group of shattered sheds, a tall chimney, and a blackened cinder mound, marking the site of a deserted mine. A light fog, meanwhile, 
was creeping up from the east, and the dusk was gathering fast. Now to lose one's way in such a place, and at such an hour, would be disagreeable enough. And the footpath, a trodden track already half obliterated, would be indistinguishable in the course of another ten minutes. Looking anxiously ahead, therefore, in the hope of seeing some sign of habitation, I hastened on, scaling one stone stile after another, till I all at once found myself skirting a line of park palings. Following these, with bare boughs branching out overhead, and dead leaves rustling underfoot, I came presently to a point where the path divided, here continuing to skirt the enclosure, and striking off yonder across a space of open meadow. Which should I take? By following the fence, I should be sure to arrive at a lodge where I could inquire my way to Pit End, but then the park might be of any extent, and I might have a long distance to go before I came to the nearest lodge. Again, the meadow path, instead of leading to Pit End, might take me in a totally opposite direction. But there was no time to be lost in hesitation, so I chose the meadow the farther end of which was lost to sight in a fleecy bank of fog. Up to this moment I had not met a living soul of whom to ask my way. It was, therefore, with no little sense of relief that I saw a man emerging from the fog and coming along the path. As we neared each other, I advancing rapidly, he slowly, I observed that he dragged the left foot, limping as he walked. It was, however, so dark and so misty that not till we were within half a dozen yards of each other could I see that he wore a dark suit and an Anglican felt hat and looked something like a dissenting minister. As soon as we were within speaking distance, I addressed him. Can you tell me, I said, if I am right for pit end, and how far I have to go? He came on, looking straight before him, taking no notice of my question, apparently not hearing it. I beg your pardon, I said, raising my voice, but will this path take me to pit end? And if so, he had passed on without pausing, without looking at me. I could almost have believed without seeing me. I stopped with the words on my lips, then turned to look after perhaps to follow him. But instead of following, I stood bewildered. What had become of him? 
and what lad was that going up the path by which i had just come that tall lad half running half walking with a fishing-rod over his shoulder i could have taken my oath that i had neither met nor passed him where then had he come from and where was the man to whom i had spoken not three seconds ago and who at his limping pace could not have made more than a couple of yards in the time my stupefaction was such that i stood quite still looking after the lad with the fishing-rod till he disappeared in the gloom under the park palings was i dreaming darkness meanwhile had closed in apace and dreaming or not dreaming i must push on or find myself benighted so i hurried forward turning my back on the last gleam of daylight and plunging deeper into the fog at every step i was however close upon my journey's end the path ended at a turnstile the turnstile opened upon a steep lane and at the bottom of the lane down which i stumbled among stones and ruts i came in sight of the welcome glare of a blacksmith's forge here then was pit end i found my trap standing at the door of the village inn the raw-boned grey stabled for the night the landlord watching for my arrival the greyhound was a hostelry of modest pretensions and i shared its little parlour with a couple of small farmers and a young man who informed me that he travelled in thorley's food for cattle here i dined wrote my letters chatted a while with the landlord and picked up such scraps of local news as fell in my way there was it seemed no resident parson at pit end the incumbent being a pluralist with three small livings the duties of which by the help of a rotatory curate he discharged in a somewhat easy fashion pit end as the smallest and farthest off came in for but one service each sunday and was almost wholly relegated to the curate the squire was a more confirmed absentee than even the vicar he lived chiefly in paris spending abroad the wealth of his pit and coal fields he happened to be at home just now the landlord said after five years absence but he would be off again next week and another five years might probably elapse before they should again see him at blackwater chase blackwater chase the name was not new to me yet i could not remember where i had heard it 
when however mine host went on to say that despite his absenteeism mr wolstenholme was a pleasant gentleman and a good landlord and that after all blackwater chase was a lonesome sort of world-end place for a young man to bury himself in then i at once remembered phil wolstenholme of balliol who in his grand way had once upon a time given me a general invitation to the shooting at blackwater chase that was twelve years ago when i was reading hard at wadham and wolstenholme the idol of a clique to which i did not belong was boating betting writing poetry and giving wine parties at balliol yes i remembered all about him his handsome face his luxurious rooms his boyish prodigality his utter indolence and the blind faith of his worshippers who believed that he had only to pull himself together in order to carry off every honour which the university had to bestow he did take the nudigate but it was his first and last achievement and he left college with the reputation of having narrowly escaped a plucking how vividly it all came back upon my memory the old college life the college friendships the pleasant time that could never come again it was but twelve years ago yet it seemed like half a century and now after these twelve years here were wolstenholme and i as near neighbours as in our oxford days i wondered if he was much changed and whether if changed it were for the better or the worse had his generous impulses developed into sterling virtues or had his follies hardened into vices should i let him know where i was and so judge for myself nothing would be easier than to pencil a line upon a card to-morrow morning and send it up to the big house yet merely to satisfy a purposeless curiosity was it worth while to reopen the acquaintanceship thus musing i sat late over the fire and by the time i went to bed i had well-nigh forgotten my adventure with the man who vanished so mysteriously and the boy who seemed to come from nowhere next morning finding i had abundant time at my disposal i did pencil that line upon my card a mere line saying that i believed we had known each other at oxford and that i should be inspecting the national schools from nine till about eleven 
and then having dispatched it by one of my landlord's sons i went off to my work the day was brilliantly fine the wind had shifted round to the north the sun shone clear and cold and the smoke-grimed hamlet and the gaunt buildings clustered at the mouths of the coal-pits round about looked as bright as they could look at any time of the year the village was built up a long hillside the church and schools being at the top and the greyhound at the bottom looking vainly for the lane by which i had come the night before i climbed the one rambling street followed a path that skirted the churchyard and found myself at the schools these with the teachers dwellings formed three sides of a quadrangle the fourth side consisting of an iron railing and a gate an inscribed tablet over the main entrance door recorded how these schoolhouses were rebuilt by philip wolstenholm esq a d eighteen hmm. mr wolstenholm sir is the lord of the manor said a soft obsequious voice i turned and found the speaker at my elbow a square-built sallow man all in black with a bundle of copy-books under his arm you are the the schoolmaster i said unable to remember his name and puzzled by a vague recollection of his face just so sir i conclude i have the honour of addressing mr fraser it was a singular face very pallid and anxious-looking the eyes too had a watchful almost a startled look in them which struck me as peculiarly unpleasant yes i replied still wondering where and when i had seen him my name is fraser yours i believe is is and i put my hand into my pocket for my examination papers skelton ebenezer skelton will you please to take the boys first sir the words were commonplace enough but the man's manner was studiously disagreeably deferential his very name being given as it were under protest as if too insignificant to be mentioned i said i would begin with the boys and so moved on then for we had stood still till now i saw that the schoolmaster was lame in that moment i remembered him he was the man i met in the fog i met you yesterday afternoon mr skelton i said as we went into the schoolroom yesterday afternoon sir 
he repeated. You did not seem to observe me, I said carelessly. I spoke to you, in fact, but you did not reply to me. But, indeed, I beg your pardon, sir. It must have been someone else, said the schoolmaster. I did not go out yesterday afternoon. How could this be anything but a falsehood? I might have been mistaken as to the man's face, though it was such a singular face, and I had seen it quite plainly. But how could I be mistaken as to his lameness? Besides, that curious trailing of the right foot, as if the ankle was broken, was not an ordinary lameness. I suppose I looked incredulous, for he added hastily, e Even if I had not been preparing the boys for inspection, sir, I should not have gone out yesterday afternoon. It was too damp and foggy. I am obliged to be careful. I have a very delicate chest. My dislike to the man increased with every word he uttered. I did not ask myself with what motive he went on heaping lie upon lie. It was enough that to serve his own ends, whatever those ends might be, he did lie with unparalleled audacity. We will proceed to the examination, Mr. Skelton, I said contemptuously. He turned, if possible, a shade paler than before, bent his head silently, and called up the scholars in their order. I soon found that whatever his shortcomings as to veracity, Mr. Ebenezer Skelton was a capital schoolmaster. His boys were uncommonly well taught, and, as regarded attendance, good conduct, and the like, left nothing to be desired. When, therefore, at the end of the examination, he said he hoped I would recommend the Pitt and Boys School for the government grant, I at once assented. And now I thought I had done with Mr. Skelton, for, at all events, the space of one year. Not so, however. When I came out from the girls' school, I found him waiting at the door. Profusely apologizing, he begged leave to occupy five minutes of my valuable time. He wished, under correction, to suggest a little improvement. The boys, he said, were allowed to play in the quadrangle, which was too small, and in various ways inconvenient. But round at the back there was a piece of waste land, half an acre of which, if enclosed, would admirably answer the purpose. So saying, he led the way to the back of the building, and I followed him. To whom does this ground belong? I asked. To Mr. Wollstoneholm, sir. 
then why not apply to mr wolstenholme he gave the schools and i dare say he would be equally willing to give the ground i beg your pardon sir mr wolstenholme has not been over here since his return and it is quite possible that he may leave pit end without honouring us with a visit i could not take the liberty of writing to him sir neither could i in my report suggest that the government should offer to purchase a portion of mr wolstenholme's land for a playground to schools of mr wolstenholme's own building i replied under other circumstances i stopped and looked round the schoolmaster repeated my last words you were saying sir uh, under other circumstances i looked round again it seemed to me that there was someone here i said some third person not a moment ago i beg your pardon sir a third person i saw his shadow on the ground between yours and mine the schools faced due north and we were standing immediately behind the buildings with our backs to the sun the place was bare and open and high and our shadows sharply defined lay stretched before our feet a a shadow he faltered impossible there was not a bush or a tree within half a mile there was not a cloud in the sky there was nothing absolutely nothing that could have cast a shadow i admitted that it was impossible and that i must have fancied it and so went back to the matter of the playground should you see mr wolstenholme i said you are at liberty to say that i thought it a desirable improvement i am much obliged to you sir thank you thank you very much he said cringing at every word but but i had hoped that you might perhaps use your influence look there i interrupted is that fancy we were now close under the blank wall of the boys schoolroom on this wall lying to the full sunlight our shadows mine and the schoolmaster's were projected and there too no longer between his and mine but a little way apart as if the intruder were standing back there as sharply defined as if cast by limelight on a prepared background 
I again distinctly saw, though but for a moment, that third shadow. As I spoke, I looked round. It was gone. Did you not see it? I asked. He shook his head. I... I saw nothing, he said faintly. What was it? His lips were white. He seemed scarcely able to stand. But you must have seen it, I exclaimed. It fell just there, where that bit of ivy grows. There must be some boy hiding. It was a boy's shadow, I am confident. A boy's shadow? He echoed, looking round in a wild, frightened way. There is no place for a boy to hide. Place or no place, I said angrily. If I catch him, he shall feel the weight of my cane. I searched backward and forward in every direction. The schoolmaster, with his scared face, limping at my heels. But rough and irregular as the ground was, there was not a hole in it big enough to shelter a rabbit. But what was it? I said impatiently. An, an illusion. Begging your pardon, sir. An illusion. He looked so like a beaten hound, so frightened, so fawning, that I felt I could, with lively satisfaction, have transferred the threatened caning to his own shoulders. But you saw it, I said again. No, sir. Upon my honor, no, sir. I saw nothing, nothing whatever. His looks belied his words. I felt positive that he had not only seen the shadow, but that he knew more about it than he chose to tell. I was by this time really angry. To be made the object of a boyish trick, and to be hoodwinked by the connivance of the schoolmaster, was too much. It was an insult to myself and my office. I scarcely knew what I said, something short and stern at all events. Then, having said it, I turned my back upon Mr. Skelton and the schools and walked rapidly back to the village. End of Part 1 of Was It an Illusion? A Parsons Story Recording by Louise J. Bell Sebastopol, California